Welcome to Swift Unwrapped, a podcast about the Swift programming language and other projects at swift.org. I'm Jesse Squires. And I'm JP Samard. And today we have special guest, Mr. Doug Greger. Say hi, Doug. Hello. Thank you for having me on the show again. It's great to be here. Yeah, welcome back. Yeah, last time we had you on was with uh, your colleague, Ben Cohen, um, which was already, uh, what, over a year and a half ago or something like that. And a lot has happened since then, namely... Uh, Swift 5.0, and more recently, or more timely, Swift 5.1, which is, as we record this, just about to um, to be officially cut. Yeah, it's been quite a year. Uh, Swift 5.0 brought ABI stability and a lot of cool things into it. And then, of course, Swift 5.1 has a whole bunch of new features, module stability, and lots of great things. Yeah, we're all uh, itching to start using it ourselves. Um, and... Uh, we really want to start diving into a lot of the new things that are in Swift 5.1 that uh, I think a lot of our listeners are excited about. Um, you know, first, I guess we just mentioned module stability, right? So we we can sort of start with that before we go into uh, a lot of the more sort of user-facing language features. Um, what does it mean for Swift to now have features that include module stability components? Yeah, and module stability is essentially the the core features that we need to be able to ship a stable Swift framework. And so module stability allows us to uh, compile a binary framework and hand it to someone so that they can use it with their Swift compiler now. They can also use it with Swift compilers in the future. And so it's really a great way to help bootstrap the ecosystem and make it easier for people to share their Swift libraries. Yeah, and how does this differ from ABI stability, Doug? Right, so ABI stability is about the compiled programs working together so that if you're using, say, an operating system that was built with Swift 5 and contains the Swift 5 library, you can write your app, compile it with Swift 5.1, and run it on that operating system built with Swift 5.0. So that's the low-level binary interface making sure that the program continues to run properly, sort of the basic thing you need to actually ship Swift within the operating system. So module stability is more about the compilers interacting. So if you have a Swift 5.1 compiled module, mm-hmm. right, with both the, the APIs and the, the, the compiled uh, shared library there, you can use it with future Swift compilers. Right? So we see Previous to this, you'd see some churn, right? From beta to beta, you'd actually have to recompile all of your code. Right, right. right. And all the libraries you depend on. Mm -hmm. When using the module stability features, you no longer need to do that because we have this stable format that works across different versions. Yeah, it's a brave new era uh, for Swift developers that if they've been targeting Apple platforms for years, right, for uh, the whole time since Swift um, has been available, uh, developers have been embedding the Swift libraries into into their application bundles, which meant that you know if there was um, a bug that was included in Swift or in any of the link libraries, it meant that you could work around it. Um, but now, if if there does happen to be a bug in in any um, module uh, that taps into Swift's module stability evolution process. It means that if you work around that bug and that bug ends up being fixed, you, you might actually have um, ha- have some compatibility uh, uh, things to think about, um, which, you know, fixing bugs is, is always a good thing, right? <laughs> and, and all software has bugs, uh, but this definitely makes developers have to think uh, a lot more distributed over time in terms of how to, um, how to develop their applications in a way that they should continue to work even as the modules that they link against also get updated and then vice versa on, on the other side of, of that uh, relationship you have the module um, authors as well that do have to put in a lot of thought if they do want to opt into this module evolution process to um, to make sure that they're evolving their libraries in, in a stable way. Right. 
Um, so as a, as a vendor of a library, you'd, you'd like to provide stability for your users so that you know, as you evolve the library, their, their code continues to work and their existing binaries continue to work. Uh, Swift's uh, features around library evolution are designed to make that as easy as possible. So the default behavior gives freedom to the, to the library author to make changes without breaking binary or source compatibility. So these are sometimes very low level things like uh, if you have a struct, you can go and add stored properties to it without breaking binary compatibility. Yeah, it's, it's very, uh, very interesting and fascinating work, especially um, you know, what's been shared on the Swift blog in terms of um, the, the features that do enable uh, some, some opt-in behaviors for things like um, frozen uh, members to allow maybe some more compiler optimizations um, if a module authors really completely certain that a certain type won't won't evolve in that sense over time. Right. There's this interesting trade-off of to to get future compatibility, uh, we need to put in some indirection. Right. If the size of the struct isn't a constant because it can change over time, the compiler needs to introduce the appropriate level of indirection to make that possible. And that can have a runtime cost. Usually it's not a big problem, but there are certain cases where that cost can be meaningful. And so features like Frozen that, that you just mentioned allow the, the framework author to give away some of their future flexibility to say, I'm no longer going to change these stored properties. They're fixed forever, but as a benefit, they can get some uh, performance improvements for their client code out of doing that. It, it's not the kind of thing that you should do lightly right? because you're cutting off some evolution of your own framework here, or you're going to be forced into a major version change if you made a mistake. But we wanted to, to give the library authors that power to make their own decisions. Right. Like the saying goes, measure twice, freeze once, so that you're not, <laughs> you're not blocking off those future, uh, future improvements for something that in, in a lot of cases may not actually lead to meaningful uh, performance optimizations. Right. And there's, there's a lot of effort that goes into the compiler's optimization pipeline to try to make sure we're still getting as efficient code as we possibly can. Um, of course, there's always work to do. There's, there's a full employment theorem for compiler writers about always being able to make code just a little bit faster. Um, but you know, the baseline performance should be good enough that most people don't have to think about sort of making their structs frozen. Could you give an example of when this overhead cost might be worth considering or scenarios where th this indirection would cause a meaningful performance hit? So the, the most common scenario is not around frozen specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, the most common scenario is around the use of generics. So um, when you have a generic function, that generic function is implemented such that can, it can work on any type that meets the requirement requirements. Doesn't matter if it's a class or a struct, doesn't matter how big it is, whatever. Right. Uh, so there's a lot of indirection that's inherent in that, that process. Now, if that generic function is only going to be used with an integer or a CG point or something, that overhead could be meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, in those cases, marking the, the generic function as inlineable Right. Allows the compiler to do this optimization that we call specialization, which is basically make a copy of the generic function and then specialize that copy knowing that the input type is an integer or CG float. Right. And or CG point. And what you get out of that is code that is tuned, eliminating all the extra indirection for that particular type, and it can be faster. So we use this, for example, in the standard library in a number of places. But mm -hmm. again, it's, it's a commitment you're making when you mark a function as inlineable to keep that function working the same way moving forward. Mm -hmm. And of course, the trade-off there is potentially having too many specialized versions, which uh, increases the binary size because now you have a bunch of specialized copies. Uh, that could certainly happen. Yes, specialization certainly in aggregate could take up a lot of code size mm -hmm. uh, if the compiler is indiscriminate about creating them. Again, this this comes down to compiler optimizer tuning, right? Trying to find the places where it's important to specialize, but not unduly 
uh, increase code size while doing so. Sure. Yeah, and it's uh, really great to see uh, both ABI stability and and uh, library evolution enabling um, some new first party frameworks coming on Apple platforms and things like iOS 13, like Swift UI, uh, uh, Reality Kit, um, Combine, and Crypto Kit. I think are some of the frameworks that um, that actually provide a native Swift interface now, rather than using uh, sort of the um, uh, uh, what do you call them? Um, the framework uh, overlays uh, that actually sh used to ship with the with the Swift runtimes, right? Right. So, you know, ABI and module stability. The thing that they enable is something really wonderful, which is that now Apple can ship Swift frameworks as part of the operating system and still evolve them over time to improve them. And so, this has unleashed, you know, some wonderful frameworks like SwiftUI and Combine and so on, um, so that developers can take advantage of them in their apps. In a sense, say ABI stability and module stability, these, these are the key features that we needed to have in place and solid to go and really build out this great Swift ecosystem. Yeah, speaking of which, I'd, I'd love to start diving into a lot of the more um, language level and, and user-facing features that are coming in Swift 5.1, um, namely something that's been quite literally years in the making, uh, property wrappers, also known as property delegates, also known as uh, property behaviors. <laughs> <laughs> so property wrappers, yeah, they've, they've been a feature that's a long time coming. Um, they started their life as a feature called property behaviors uh, for people keeping track. That is SE0030. It was reviewed in late 2015, early 2016, so we're talking more than three years ago. And uh, we tried to build this feature. Uh, it looked a little bit different than what we have today, but the design just got complicated. <laughs> and uh, I think it went through th two review iterations. The design wasn't really converging down to something that we felt good about. And so at that point, uh, the core team set it aside deferred the proposal and said, well, we'll try to get back to it another time. So fast forward three years and, you know, and 200 evolution proposals later, and now we, we have this feature named property wrappers. And even then, it, as you mentioned, it had different names because it's been influenced by many things. So if you look at the property behaviors proposal from years ago, it had a whole bunch of examples, things like lazy and deferred and so on. We still wanted to make those things work, and, and they do work in the new system, but we completely changed our, our approach to doing this because we've learned a couple things in three years of working with Swift. Yeah, can you elaborate on that a little bit in terms of um, uh, specifically what you just said? Uh, what kind of recent learnings in, in the time since SE30 uh, do you think most influenced um, the the design changes in this feature? Yeah, I think the the biggest thing we learned, I think, is that back when we were doing property behaviors, you know, three years ago, um, we were treating it as a very special thing, like it was a new kind of construct in the language. And when we went back at it to to build property wrappers, we didn't want it to be so very special because having a new special thing in the language, like it's, it's at the same level as an enum or a struct as being a special kind of entity. We didn't want to do that again. We wanted to make it something simpler. And, and I think really what we learned is that if you build a new language feature and that language feature is just syntactic sugar, right? So it's something you could have written yourself, but instead the compiler is doing most of the work by giving you special syntax. Those are way easier to understand because you can show people the magical syntax, and then you can show people how the compiler expanded into things that they already understand, right? Properties, types, getters and setters, that stuff. And the magic goes away, right? It just becomes something that's a new tool in your toolbox for making more concise and expressive code, but it's not a new idea for you to understand. Yeah, in that sense, it's, it's, it has a lot of parallels with you know, type-safe macros where, you can sort of see how something expands. Uh, you have a you have a short form to use it, 
Um, but it's more than that, right? Because you also get composability out of these property wrappers. And so it, it is at the end of the day, quote unquote, just um, semantic sugar, but it enables so much more expressiveness and, and it allows you to build things that you would otherwise just not go through the trouble of having such a verbose, um, complicated and, and sort of copy pasted approach to things um, that also comes with its own drawbacks where you can, in this case, you can actually have a type safe mechanism that enforces certain, certain behaviors or that, uh, that are documented in one place and implemented in one place and, and you sort of avoid the risk of having to reapply patterns all over the place um, for things like, you know, if you're doing your own version of lazy or, um, or similar things. So I, I absolutely love this and, and especially the way that it's um, being tapped into by things like SwiftUI that uh, really expose these property wrappers as a public interface. Um, and it really ends up being sort of a, a core part of how you use that. Yeah, I think it's interesting. We talk about syntactic sugar as if almost of it, it doesn't matter, right? You don't need the syntactic sugar there because you could have written it the other way. But syntactic sugar can be really powerful if it allows you to describe something concisely. And, you know, you can see SwiftUI doing that. SwiftUI vends a number of different property wrapper types. So it has state and binding, environment object, all these things. And the nice thing there is they have one implementation they're in Swift UI, but it creates especially essentially this this little domain specific language that can allow you to easily describe the data dependencies of your Swift UI views. And it's written as an annotation, so it's a little bit to the side. You don't have to think about it as the primary thing, but it allows the, the framework to manage all of your data dependencies behind the scenes. Yeah, it's really nice. And it's been great to see uh, the community also come up with a number of uh, neat patterns. Uh, there's the burritos repository that's out there that has things like uh, an, an undo stack that you can um, you can apply to properties. Uh, it, it has all, all sorts of neat things that the community sort of taken and, and run with. Um, what are your thoughts on on seeing what the community is coming up like that, Doug? Uh, the, the community has been fantastic throughout this process. I mean, the property wrappers proposal, even if you ignore the property behaviors from three years ago, so property wrappers went through multiple rounds of revision, multiple pitches, multiple reviews, and the community made a massive improvements to the design here. There's, there's the sort of sy simple syntactic things. I don't know if, if anyone looked back at the first pitch, I had actually borrowed some syntax from Kotlin for the initial property delegates, as it was called at that point, where you wouldn't say at state var is enabled, you would say var is enabled by state, right, to say how you are translating this thing. And right. some people liked it, some people didn't, but then the, the idea came for using custom attributes out of the community, and it was like, wow, this is a much better way to describe this feature. It reads better, but also here's a syntactic space, attributes that people have wanted to use anyway, right? They've wanted to build custom attributes. They've been asking for us for this feature for years. And here was a way that we could do that to solve this narrower problem, but sort of set the direction of here's a customization point we can use. It's really powerful and reads really nicely. Um, and of course, people have come up with such amazing use cases for uh, property wrappers. I mean, the burritos repository is great. Um, we've also seen things like command line argument parsing and people building um, like uh, database layers using property wrappers to describe the relationships within their databases. It's actually a really a very flexible feature. And having people coming up with, with all these great ideas and use cases really drives the design toward something better and more composable. Yeah, what I especially like about it is that it does leave um, space for, for evolution in that feature itself as well. Um, you know, you mentioned things like building um, 
uh, object relational mappers on top of these property builders. Well, the the design allows for things like in the future, if you want to say inject some sort of representation of the type and its structure and the property being declared into that property builder, um, it it does sort of allow that expansion if, if the community were to push it that way, right? You've seen like at user default um, comes to mind in, in the burritos repository, but uh, you know, the, the examples tend to really just replicate uh, the variable name with a string. Well, what if we could do that automatically or what we could, what if we could have sort of um, some, some more, uh, information about the the types being linked, we could build even even stronger things, right? Um, and and thankfully, the way that this has been designed, it does allow for that sort of future expansion, whether it's that direction or, or something else, which I'm very excited about. Yeah, I think the scheme that we used, where where property wrappers are, they're just normal types, a structure, a class, whatever, uh, and then they just define the the properties and initializers and other members that are needed to interact with the property wrappers feature is really nicely extensible because you can go add members to types and we can extend that contract between a property wrapper and uh, the compiler itself to enable this behavior like passing more information into the into the property wrapper type. Uh, we've actually done some experiments in this regard. Um, so in a property wrapper type, the fundamental way you get at the underlying value is through this wrapped value property. Okay, so a property wrapper type is responsible for storing the underlying value. You can do that however it wants. Mm -hmm. And the way it gives you that value is by calling, by providing this wrapped value property, we call the getter or the setter as appropriate. And that's, that's where you put all your sort of business logic of what the property wrapper type actually does. What we noticed, and it's something we couldn't have done three years ago, uh, is that subscripts are another fantastic way to describe this notion of getting or setting a value. And the wonderful thing about subscripts is they have arguments and they can be generic. And so one of the future directions of the property wrappers proposal is in taking the, the self of your enclosing type and actually passing it in to the property wrapper type. So if you have you know, your state variable within a view, we could pass in the self into that state type so that the property wrapper itself can reason about both the value it has and its context within the enclosing type. Right, and if you can do that one level, you can actually chain it up all the way and, and follow sort of the, not the inheritance chain, but the um, the encapsulation chain uh, or the ownership chain, I guess, um, of getting sort of your yourself, but also that self may be a property of something else above it, right? You can sort of follow the chain that way. And there there are definitely some neat things that, that could be built on that. Um, and now that Swift 5.1 is nearly out, uh, look forward to seeing what people come up with. Yeah, there there is an active thread on the on the Swift forums that's talking about sort of what's next for property wrappers, uh, and investigating some of these cases where we have use cases that almost fit the model, but we need a little bit more, and we should talk about what what great things we can build going forward. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. Um, what uh, what are some of the capabilities that this could unlock in, in like more practical terms? Well, so. Um, one of the one of the reasons I, I brought up specifically this notion of passing self in is that is one of the most highly requested features. Uh, in fact, it's actually technically in the compiler in a sort of private underscored realm. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason being that people have wanted to use this for observers. Ah, uh, I see. So when you have something that is a property inside a class and you want to build an observer around it, that property wrapper type, it really needs to know what self is. If it's gonna mm -hmm. you know, react to a, a will set or a did set, it has to say, well, I change, but I am a part of this object and this is the object that changed. Mm -hmm. So passing itself is actually critical to that. Um, I expect that would be the first thing that we should do you know, beyond the initial property wrappers proposal. But what I'd like to see is more people 
exploring these mm-hmm. to see what that general form is, to see if we need to go out multiple levels of nesting or if we need to deal with uh, property wrapper composition in some special way with that feature so that we build like the, the next general thing that enables a lot of new functionality rather than just having one use case. Yeah, so you mentioned that property wrappers enables things like building domain-specific languages. And another uh, part of that story in Swift 5.1 is function builders, which uh, is a core part of uh, using Swift UI. Um, and that's still making its way through the evolution process. So I'm I'm really uh, curious about you know where where you see this going, Doug, and and especially the relationship that function builders had um, regarding other things that are that are shipping alongside Swift 5.1, like Swift UI, that depend heavily on it, even though the community hasn't settled on all the details through the evolution process. Right. So function builders is this this core feature that's used um, to build domain specific languages. It lets you essentially take in a, a closure and then transform it into a single value that can be you know, used somewhere within within your your API. Um, and Swift UI uses this to describe the, the entire view hierarchy. You're building these large, deeply nested closures that list out the views in the hierarchy, and then a function builder within the Swift UI framework is collapsing that down into a particular view. So yeah, function builders is an interesting feature. It's had a lot of interest and there's a lot of people that want to build other kinds of domain specific languages using this idea of function builders. And what we realized is that function builders are, are great for Swift UI and people have built other interesting things uh, on top of them. And so we had some sort of HTML formatting examples that we had proposed, uh, but also we've seen people building um, there's a pull request against the, the Swift repository to actually allow you to build Swift syntax trees using the function builders as a DSL. It makes it really easy to generate Swift code from inside your Swift code, <laughs> uh, which is which will be fun for the future. Um, right. But there's so many different directions we can go with function builders to allow more domain-specific languages to be really nicely embedded in Swift that it didn't make sense to standardize exactly what we have. And so this feature really does need time. Um, yeah, uh, on the other hand, you know, SwiftUI did ship and is using function builders. And so actually this, this relates a little bit to what we talked about with property wrapper types. So with property wrapper types, it's just a normal type. And we talked about how we can sort of change the contract over time of how that type handshakes with the compiler to add new features. Function builders are architected in exactly the same way. So a function builder is just a type. Uh, in SwiftUI, there's one called ViewBuilder. And that type has a bunch of static functions on it that the compiler calls to essentially collapse the closure that the user gave into a single value. We can change over time what functions are called and thereby making a a more expressive contract that works for more kinds of domain-specific languages and gets at some of these ideas of like, are we dealing with something that's a little more macro expansion-y or something that allows you to defer more computation? And as we do this, of course, Swift UI code needs to continue to work, but because the contract between the function builder and the compiler is sort of a separate thing on the side that we can manage, we have a lot of leeway to improve the feature and make it work for everyone. Right. So because function builders aren't necessarily built as a special case of the language where it it does collapse to, at the end of the day, uh, just function calls, the fact that function builders um, isn't uh, a public-facing feature in Swift 5.1, you you can still um, sort of ship things like Swift UI with module stability and change the way that function builders work, say in Swift 5.2 or in Swift 6, um, and and you can still preserve that evolution. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Again, like with property wrappers, function builders are 
a it's syntactic sugar. It's elaborate syntactic sugar, and you certainly wouldn't want to write the the desugared version yourself. But it's it's just mapping down to SwiftUI APIs under the hood, and we could evolve the function builder feature while still mapping down to the same SwiftUI APIs because that mapping is completely controlled by SwiftUI. It, it's not part of the compiler at all. Yeah, I really love how these two features are built using these existing constructs and features and concepts so that they're, uh, like you said, when you when you decompose that syntactic sugar, it's things that you already understand. And so it kind of unveils some of this, what seems like magic is really just core sorts of concepts and features that you're already familiar with. Yeah, in general, that's that's a good way to design a programming language. I mean, you want some sort of core kernel to the language that, that everyone understands. And then as you build out new features to make it more expressive, you'd like those to to map down to that kernel because we can always understand it that way. We can look at some code with a function builder and say, ah, that looks different. What is this? Mm-hmm. But when we see the translation, oh, it's just mapping down to a couple of function calls. I could have done those myself. Right, right. right. And so it, it demystifies it, but it doesn't take away any of its its expressiveness or power. Sure. Uh, another thing that SwiftUI um, really heavily depends on is this concept of opaque result types. Um, and I'm very curious, given your um, very close involvement in making that happen, Doug, um, sort of where where you see that uh, moving forward as a as a core Swift feature, the the this ability to um, from interfaces to return um, uh, some of a protocol rather than a concrete type implementation that may just be an implementation detail that you don't necessarily want to leak out to public consumers of, of your interface. Yeah, opaque result types is a really interesting feature. It's it's motivated exactly as you said by the, the idea that you want to have a function, and often the function is generic, and it returns something, some kind of view or some kind of collection, but you don't want to have to expose the actual underlying type because it shouldn't matter. It's It's only behavior is that it is a view. And this is nice from the perspective of the author of a library, because it means that you can describe your API with the minimal surface area, and you're free to change the details later on. So maybe you start out, and your first implementation of a function that returns some view builds you know, one particular view, and it's a simple, simple thing. Over time, you can evolve it to produce something completely different. If you were changing the actual type that your users see every time, that would be a problem because it would break their source code. Mm-hmm. And if you were stuck with the, t- the type that you picked the first time, well, for one, you'd have to have a whole lot of extra types describing these return types. You probably don't really want in your API because no one should care. But it would also lock you in to always using that particular type. So opaque result types gives you this freedom to hide a bunch of your implementation details while still maintaining good performance and having this really clean API design. How do you see that um, playing out in the future with uh, some of the future directions outlined in the generics manifesto? And something that comes to mind is is this uh, this direction of um, opening up existentials so that, uh, because one of the constraints right now with opaque result types is that um, it, the compiler still needs to enforce that there is a single concrete uh, type that ends up being returned for that opaque result value. Um, so it's it's fairly fundamental to the design of opaque result types that every return statement in that function that returns an opaque result returns the same concrete type. And the reason is that the, the sort of tr- type checking model around opaque result types is when you call a function that returns an opaque result type, you get back a value that has some type. And you don't know what that type is behind the scenes. It could be anything because it's it's up to the library author to define that type. But you do know that if you call that function a couple times in a row, you get back values of the exact same type. And type identity is actually a pretty strong notion in in Swift, where you need to know, are these two types the same? Because if they are, then they have the same memory layout. They're completely interchangeable. This, this notion of existentials 
is different because they have two values of existential type. You don't know if they're actually the same type, so you can't compare them, you can't copy, you can't directly copy them because they might have different memory layouts. And so there's a lot more cost in that abstraction than in opaque result types, and it's a lot less flexible because it falls apart when you're dealing with parts of the type system that really require identity. And so what I expect for opaque result types is that we'll start seeing more libraries adopt them so that they can have sort of cleaner, more focused APIs that are described in terms of opaque results on, on their core protocols. Uh, if we had this feature years ago, we would probably be using it throughout the, the standard library for, for lazy and all of these collection algorithms. We didn't have that then, but we could probably do so going forward. Yeah, so it seems like uh, it would eventually be useful to be able to return multiple different types from the same function. And obviously that's not the goal of opaque return types, but can you speak a little bit about how that may work and what the current um, difficulties are in implementing something like that? Yeah, sure. So the, the current restrictions right now on returning an existential is that the, the existential is described in terms of protocol. So I'm trying to return a collection, and I don't say what collection it is. Now, we don't currently allow that in Swift. And the restrictions you see are you can't do it because collection has associated types in it. Right. Right. And then there's, there's also one about self-requirements. But, but with associated types, the issue is, let's say I call a function and it returns a collection. Mm -hmm. So I have a value of that collection type. What is its element type? Like, what can I say about its element type? I kind of can't say anything about it. Right. <laughs> because it could be anything. It could have returned an array of strings or a set of integers. Who knows? Those are both collections. Mm -hmm. So it would be reasonable to say, extend the expressiveness of you know, a value of collection type to let you tie down some of the associated types. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we could say, well, I'm returning a collection whose element type is string. Mm -hmm. And then I might return an array of strings or a set of strings or some other internal collection you don't know, but I can, I can depend on it being a string. So that, that's an, mm -hmm. essentially an easy change to make from the language design perspective. And I expect that Swift will do that at some point. Uh, but it still gets a little confusing when you don't tie those down. Mm -hmm. So maybe I do have a collection where the element type is a string and I call the function twice and I get two values, A and B. One could be an array of strings and the other is a set of strings. That's fine. Mm -hmm. um, I can compare two elements out of there. Can I compare the indices from those two, the index types? Probably not, because they're totally different types. Right, right. Um, and, and so this, this notion of sort of type identity, when, when can you know that two values that are stated to have the same type, right? they're both collections with, with string elements, when can you know that like, the associated types of those things are always guaranteed to be the same type versus needing to be different? And that's where the language design aspects get a little bit more complicated with generalizing the existentials feature. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Joe Groff wrote sort of a, a second Swift manifest, uh, generics manifesto describing some of these issues and sort of how we could make a model that generalizes existentials, but without introducing a whole ton of syntax or a whole bunch of extra rules that, that we might find hard to understand. Right. It seems like the syntax could get a bit cumbersome if we're not careful. It absolutely could. And there have been a couple of different pitches and proposals kicking around that, that try to tackle it. Mm -hmm. All of them add like new fundamental syntax to the language. <laughs> not right, not the right. syntactic sugar that we've been talking about from like property mm -hmm. and function builders, but something that really does extend the core model. And so with those, we have to tread very carefully. Well, speaking of syntactic sugar, because it does seem to be a theme here, uh, uh, there's another nice one um, that sort of realigns uh, some of the um, syntax that was previously possible in in, uh, in closures, uh, and also extends it to functions where you can um, omit the return keyword if you have a single uh, expression in a function body. Um, 
and and you see that uh, being useful, especially in function builders as well, um, where you you can really just um, uh, like in Swift UI, you can really just call the closures on your respective view hierarchy and not have to have the word return every single time that you want to add something in the hierarchy. Um, was that something that was strongly motivated by Swift UI? Did that come from a different place of really just trying to seek alignment with closures or, or something else entirely? Yeah, it's it's something that's been around as a sort of simplification and unification we wanted to do for a while. And we've always had this notion that single expression closures didn't need to write return. And we try to make closures and functions really similar in many ways because they're, they're the same on abstraction, right? One is just a sort of inline unnamed form of, of the other. And so many return keywords, just this nice little cleanup we wanted to do uh, certainly when you're writing a property getter, it's so easy to forget that return keyword. And I've been making that mistake for years. Um, with SwiftUI, it became more apparent that this, this unnecessary syntactic difference that you need the keyword in, at one level of your view hierarchy, but not at all the other levels of your view hierarchy, it was just strange. And so um, I think this is something we wanted to do for a long time. And SwiftUI gave us a little extra bit of motivation that we needed to, to actually just make it happen um, and clean up the code base. And honestly, I can't go back. I never write that return anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so speaking of, of that, how this, how Swift UI kind of influenced uh, omitting the return in this case, um, Kind of bring it back to the other features we've talked about with property wrappers and function builders and opaque result types. Now that SwiftUI is released and uh, we've gotten to, you know, we're we're about to see the final release of Swift five five point one. Now we know that SwiftUI has been in development for a while. While these features of Swift were being uh, developed. Um, out in the open and open source. Uh, can you speak a little bit about how that process was um, and how changes to, um, for example, the function builder proposal is still actually in review, so it's still subject to change, yet it's currently, um, that feature is currently being used in SwiftUI. Um, can you clear up sort of how, how these things are kind of working together and how how that evolution will affect SwiftUI and vice versa. So all of these features that we've talked about are about making Swift a more expressive language for you know, building great APIs and all these, these great experiences. Uh, you know, SwiftUI is one you know, high profile client of, of these features and of Swift itself, right? I mean, SwiftUI, if you, ignore the, the new features like property wrappers and function builders, it's making deep use of Swift generics and type inference and like these core things that we built into Swift from the beginning because we wanted to be able to build, you know, great experiences like modern UI framework. So there's, there's always this interesting case of on the language side, you have to build the most general feature that's going to work everywhere, right? That's going to allow people to mm -hmm. express new APIs and build cool stuff that we didn't even imagine. And the, the evolution process is really great at finding those use cases and improving designs. Mm -hmm. um, you can certainly see that with property wrappers and how they've evolved throughout the evolution process. Um, and with function builders, it's, it's ongoing. Um, process and you know we'll, we'll get there I don't know how long it's going to take function builders is a, is a big feature and people want to take it in a lot of directions so um, you know Swift UI is going to make use of these features obviously we want to make Swift UI amazing mm -hmm. um, but we're, we're very careful to leave ourselves a lot of leeway in the design of these features and in, in how Swift UI uses them so that as we improve the language features and shift them with all this community feedback, you know, SwiftUI can react without breaking anything. 
Yeah. Could you, do you have any, um, maybe more concrete examples of how, how that's happened so far? Sure. Actually, I can give you an example from function builders that we've been uh, working on fairly recently. So Mm -hmm. not Swift 5.1, talking about the the Swift master repository and where we're building things now. So um, one of the things that we found with with function builders as they're used in Swift UI is that uh, you tend to get pretty large uh, Swift UI view hierarchies expressed essentially as one giant expression involving lots of closures. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we found is this is putting a lot of pressure on the compiler's constraint solver. So that the thing that actually does all the type inference mm-hmm. um, to the point where some of the problems we're seeing are, you know, expression does not type check, right? That, that dreaded error uh, happening with Swift UI code right. because of the way function builders was formulated. Uh, so the last I don't know, month or so, we've been working on a different formulation of how function builders is type checked. So we, we call them unidirectional constraints. The, the actual details aren't that important, but it is essentially a small change to the semantic model of how function builders are type checked. And what it does is allows us to much more efficiently perform type inference across like these large Swift UI view hierarchies and, and anything that's using function builders. And we were able to make that change on the type checker side, roll it out, and fundamentally it's a big model change. In theory, it could have broken something based on function builders. But in reality, mm-hmm. SwiftUI didn't need to change at all. And so we're able to get a significant type checking improvement by changing the underlying semantic model, but without having any effect on existing client code. And I think there's a lot more. What that tells me is that we have a lot of evolution that we can do on the function builder's design, right. how it's implemented in the compiler, and how it interacts with with the the frameworks and libraries that people build. And SwiftUI will just benefit from that; it doesn't need to change. Right. And these improvements to chi- type type checking can they be uh, utilized more broadly in the Swift compiler? At some point, yes. Uh, yeah. As I noted, it was a slight semantic change for function builders. Mm-hmm. So we would need to apply that slight semantic change elsewhere in the language I see. to do it and evaluate whether that actually ch- changes code in practice. Um, I'm actually fairly hopeful that uh, we can find a way to more generally apply this this sort of semantic optimization to the type checking of closures in Swift uh, requires experimentation still, mm-hmm. but uh, it, it looks promising, especially with, with the big improvements that we've seen on the Swift UI side. Nice, that sounds interesting. Yeah, plus it's given you an opportunity to, to, to do some more graph manipulation work, which uh, does seem to, to be a fun challenge. <laughs> Certainly if you follow me on Twitter, you can see when I'm working on this area of the compiler. <laughs> uh, because I get very, very excited about graph theory. Um, it, it turns out that a, a little bit of elementary graph theory, you know, understanding nodes and edges and basic algorithms like depth first search and connected components goes a very long way into making an efficient type checker. Uh, this, this is an area that hmm. I, I've always loved dabbling in. And so this gives me ex- an excuse to do it. Yeah, and speaking of some sort of under the hood changes, um, there's also been quite a large effort in Swift 5.1 to move uh, many of the diagnostics to a new diagnostics engine. Uh, and and we should really call that out because uh, from what I've seen, it really does enable um, sort of richer error messages and um, just a better foundation moving forward for for giving developers uh, better feedback on, on code as they're writing it. So I'm excited to use that. Yeah, that's an effort that's been ongoing in the compiler for, for quite a while. Essentially, you know, in the compiler, we have this constraint solver, essentially, that does type inference. And when it fails, it is because some particular set of constraints couldn't be met. And so our new diagnostics infrastructure essentially finds those points of failures, finds the sort of the best way to 
fix up the expression, giving you a, an error message for that, and continue on to, to try to find a solution if only you had done this one particular thing correctly, right? And uh, the hope and what we're, we're starting to see um, as, as more and more of this is coming online is that it can provide better targeted error messages to tell you exactly what went wrong such that if you fix that thing, the expression should now type check properly and your program will be, you know, we'll, we'll get past the compiler. So that is super exciting work. Um, it is absolutely going to help developers using Swift UI, where we, we know the error messages are not great. Um, but it's, it's a lot of work and a lot of internal refactoring to get there. Yeah, it definitely doesn't seem like, uh, like a trivial problem to solve. Um, I have one last question, and that's um, sort of where you see Swift UI um, in terms of the greater Swift ecosystem. Um, do you see it as an extension of the Swift project, right? It has Swift in the name. Um, so, so I'm just really curious how you see it and how, how that name came about. Yeah, sure. So uh, Swift UI is, is an Apple framework. And, um, you know, it's, it's this modern UI framework, which we've always wanted to build for, for Swift. And, you know, it really takes advantage of a lot of the, the unique characteristics of the Swift language that let us build this expressive API. And, of course, the really great developer experience around that particular API. All right. Well, Doug, I want to sincerely thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, we had some really interesting insights from the conversation. And I, for one, look forward to, uh, to shipping Swift 5.1 in, in my work. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to be here and chat with you. Cool. Uh, for folks listening, you can find the show on Twitter at Swift underscore Unwrapped. And you can find me at Jesse underscore Squires. You can find me at SimJP on Twitter. And Doug, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at DGregor79. If you want to follow along with Doug and his uh, graph uh, theory developments. <laughs> so many graphs. Among many other things. All right. Thanks. And see you next time. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.